0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. um, Today's text is actually verses 12... Um, on through chapter 3, the first couple verses, several verses in chapter 3. However, I want to read, start at verse 6 for a bit of context and review. It's very important that we get what Paul is saying. This, um, this part, this portion of Scripture is very difficult to understand. Very difficult to understand. Um, even, there's even parts of it where you can just throw your hands up and go, Paul says you don't understand unless you understand. If you understand, you understand. If you don't understand, then you don't understand. Um, you can kind of say that here but there's a way that Paul is writing to almost ironically say that you guys think that you're wise Corinth, you guys think that you guys have arrived at pure true maturity but you haven't and let me prove it to you and so this is what he writes And um, so I'm going to read it to you and then, um, and then I'll pray if you need a bible would you raise your hand and I'm going to be referring a lot to the, the Bible today. So if you, um, if you don't have one, raise your hand. We'll get you one of these in your hand. You can take it home if you promise to read it every day for two hours. So it's like win-win, pretty much. Um, just keep your hand up. Ushers will come around and throw you a, throw you a Bible. Um, or if you have, like, phone stuff, you can open up your phone or whatever you do. All right, um, verse 6. Let's start there. Paul says, because you remember, he's, he's talking about foolishness and wisdom and all that stuff. Remember when, he, when he's talking about this whole thing, if, you, if you've been here for a while, he's talking about wisdom, and uh, there's one more that needs a Bible We're up here, ushers, as well, and down here, and right here. Yeah. If you're around them, maybe you can just share until they get one. Like, maybe if you're next to them, share your Bible. It's a Christian thing to do, I'm just saying, I don't know. <laughs> all right, uh, you know, Paul's just talking about wisdom, and we have... Um, the wisdom of God and the the foolishness of God. And you know how he's getting in all that. And then he says, well, we do actually, we do have a wisdom. Don't think that Christianity is so void of wisdom. We have a wisdom, he says. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom. But it's it's for the mature. But not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. That is such an important sentence. You should underline it because we're going to come back to that in a second. Are there no more Bibles? Because people have their hands up. No more? Okay, there's no more. I'm sorry. I apologize. This happens every week. Sorry. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming. Nothing. That's a very, very important sentence. That actually frames this whole section. That's why I'm rereading it. Verse 7. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory. That has been hidden and that for God had destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age, there it is again, rulers of this age, understood it. For if they actually had understood this wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written in Isaiah, no eye has seen what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. These things are the things that God has revealed to us by His Spirit. You always have to throw verse 10 in there. Because you know people say that, hey, no one knows. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. And you're like, yeah, but you you read the rest of that passage? It says that we actually do know. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God... For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? Francis taught on this last week. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Is everybody following, right? You guys all understand this, right? No? Not all. Okay. He, 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 he kind of sums it up. He, he here now brings it, he brings it down home. Okay, verse... Verse 1 in chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Or in, in some translation it says fleshly. fleshly or fleshy. You are still of the flesh. Mere infants or babes in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Ooh, that one hurts. Indeed, you are still... Years later, not ready, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one, one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Paulus." are you not mere human beings? It's our text this morning that we will attempt to try to unpack and let the Holy Spirit speak to us. But let's pray before we, we get into this. God, thank you for this church It's your church, Lord, and I know that, um, as your word says in Ephesians, that you take your bride, the church, and you wash it with the water of the word of God. You have a way of cleansing us as we sit under your word and hear from your word. You have a way of purifying our hearts and our motives and redirecting our steps and even um, re-informing our minds and shaping our minds in accordance to your will and your word and not to our ways or even the world's ways, God. And so this morning we submit to you and we say that you are good. No matter what trial we may go, be going through, no matter what pain that we may be feeling right now, we say you're good, God. And we, we pray that you would reveal things to us. If there are people that are here that do not believe in you, have not, are not following you, God. Faith is a gift. I pray you'd bestow it upon them, God. That you would open up their eyes and they would just go, I get it thing I've been searching for forever. It wasn't because someone explained it, it was because it was like, God, turn on the switch, and I get it. May that happen today, all over this room. Pray that you would anoint me, God. We pray together that you would, because I I can't stand up here on my own, my own authority, or my own um, charisma, or anything else, God. I need you. So we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Who do you think of When you think of someone spiritual, when you think of someone who's super uber spiritual, when you think of a spiritual person, what do you think of? If you were to, if we were to list them out, one of the things that we think of when someone is spiritual is someone who prays and prays a lot and prays in different languages that has a huge vocabulary in prayer. When we think of someone who's spiritual, it's someone who's somewhat detached from the minutiae of life. Like, they don't get involved in the peddly things and the, the small things. They live, like, on a higher plane. They seem to always float through life, and they all talk with, like, the same tone of voice, always. And they pause in weird places. You know, they, like, why, why'd you pause there? That didn't, like, what? And it's they, they, like, those people are spiritual. That's that's who we think we think spiritual people are. These free free floating in this spiritual spiritual sense. Spiritual spirituality is something of supernatural to us. It's otherworldly experiences to us. An esoteric knowledge of deeper truths is what we call spirituality. Or someone who does yoga, or has like a great beard, or doesn't wear shoes often, or. Smells like patchouli. Like those people are spiritual people. That might be a very Californian sense of spirituality, but the Corinthians had a different understanding of what spirituality was. You and I would deem someone spiritual if they had these sort of qualities, these sort of things, especially in San Francisco where everyone's spiritual here in this city. Everyone's spiritual. It's one of the great inroads of the gospel, I believe, in this church, is that everyone's spiritual and wants to be connected to something transcendent, some spiritual reality that's beyond them. And I believe that's true. That's something in us that God has placed in us. But Corinth, ancient, the ancient city of Corinth and their culture had a different idea of spirituality. And like us, their idea of spirituality is detached to the reality of true spirituality. And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to correct their idea of what true spirituality is. What real spirituality really is. And this is what we'll learn from our text this morning. Who spiritual people are, how spiritual people think, and what spiritual people do. Who spiritual people are, what spirit, how spiritual people think, and what spiritual people do. That's how we'll go through our text, what we just read this morning. First, who spiritual people are? Who are they? Remember that in planting the church in Corinth and pastoring this church, Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he moved to Corinth and he stayed there for 18 months and he worked and he labored to plant the church there in Corinth, he was faced with the massive task of re-socialization. Meaning he was seeking to reshape the moral imaginations of these Gentile and Jewish, the mainly Gentile, converts into a pattern of life consonant with the ways of the God of Israel. He was taking what they believed the world to be, and he was trying to reshape their worldview. Paul had to reshape the way they thought about everything. And this is some of what Paul is trying to do here in 1 Corinthians. He had to reshape the way they thought about life. He had to reshape the way the Corinthians thought about death. He had to reshape the way they thought about food and sex and, here, spirituality, There is a way they thought of spirituality that Paul has to redirect and reshape. Now, to understand what Paul is trying to say here in this portion of 1 Corinthians, this text is very hard. Some pastors and scholars say that um, they refer to this section when when Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Our brother Paul, he writes some great things, but some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. That's what Peter writes in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. And a lot of pastors and commentators are like, this is one of those verses that they, he was talking about. Like, who understands? You read this, you're like, okay, let's just skip on to the good stuff First 1 Corinthians. Like, let's move beyond this. Who understands this? Now, in order to understand this, we need some review. Now, bear with me. This is very important stuff. Some of this may be reviewed to you. And if it is, the light bulb might come on for you. 1 Corinthians so far, this is what we've been learning. It starts with a message of unity. Paul says, I heard that there are divisions in the church. I want you to be perfectly unified. I don't want you guys to be divided. I want you to be unified. And then he goes right in from a message on unity. That's very important because that's how this section will end. On unity, he goes right into the cross. He says, you are the people, a people of the cross. I want you to be united around the cross of Jesus. Oh, by the way, the cross is foolishness to the world. It's utter foolishness, but it's the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of God. In order for you to see that the cross is the wisdom of God, you have to be mature. And what Paul does is he hijacks this word mature. This is a word that the culture of Corinth threw around a lot. Are you mature? I'm mature. We're mature. Maturity is the word that they use, that that the sophists use. Remember sophistry? We talked about that like four weeks ago. The sophists used the word maturity to describe someone who has reached true wisdom. If you reach this place of true wisdom, you are mature. If you reach this place of nirvana or true enlightenment, obviously I'm mixing cultures when I say that, but it meant you arrived. Have you arrived yet? Have you graduated into true spirituality? Have you graduated into true maturity? And they were, Corinthians thought that they were mature. Hey, Paul, we're mature. We don't actually need you as our pastor anymore. We don't actually need you to teach us anymore. You are simple. You only feed us milk. We don't want your milk anymore. We're mature. We're on the solid food. This is what they're telling Paul. We are mature. We've arrived. And Paul has to redefine what maturity means. See, they thought they arrived. They thought they were mature. They thought they had knowledge. They thought they had speech. They thought they had tongues. We're going to get to tongues a little later. That means when they prayed, they prayed in a foreign language. And they didn't know the foreign language before. And God gave it to them. They're like, Paul, when we get together, everyone's speaking in a tongue. I mean, sure, no one knows what's happening at all. Like someone just says a word. Like I'm not going to speak in tongues right now because first, I don't have that gift, by the way. Full disclosure. I want it. Don't have it. It's the coolest gift ever. I just don't have it. I pray, God. God. I would love to speak in tongues. That would be so rad. And God's like, no, not for you, it wouldn't be rad. You would, you would like it too much. Um, I don't know if he said that to me really, but that's kind of the impression I'm getting from God right now. But they, we're like, we, when we get together, everyone has this foreign language. No one knows what's going on in the church, but it's so fun. Everyone's moving around, and it's so, to use the word, Charismatic. Worship sessions, our time of worship is so amazing. Everyone has, someone has a prophecy, and then someone has a tongue, and someone, and man, it's just, and Paul's like, but you guys aren't getting along. He's like, but who cares? We got tongues. We got words of prophecy, but there's, you guys don't even like the pastor, like, this, is the, this was the problem, and, and Paul is saying, you're not mature, you're not, you're babies, all of you are infants, you're still on the breast. Okay, I don't mean to be graphic, but this is exactly what Paul says. See, they didn't have, didn't have baby formula and warm bottles then. Paul was saying, you're a five-year-old still on your mom's breast. Now, I'm not going to talk about breastfeeding right now, so don't, <laughs> or the intricacies of it, or anything like that, but a five-year-old... Because the church was about that old, still, still having milk is, is as awkward as I feel right now. <laughs> it's awkward. And that's what Paul is saying to them. He said, this is so awkward. You're not, you're not at all mature. You're not, you, I can't give you solid food. You guys want solid food. I can't. I had to give you the very elementary formula of, uh, of, of Jesus because you guys haven't moved on. You guys won't move on. Now Paul has to redefine maturity. Now how, do you, how does he redefine maturity? Now what does maturity mean? Well, someone who's reached true spiritual, true wisdom or enlightenment, it means this. This is what Paul said. To be mature means to be spiritual. So maturity is to be spiritual. So he connects maturity to spirituality. That's what Paul does. If you're mature, you're spiritual. Spirituality, he has to redefine that too, means that you have and are taught by the Spirit of God. So if you reread that passage I just read to you, with this understanding, spirituality and maturity means to have and be taught by the Spirit of God, it'll start to make sense to you. This is why I said you're taught by the Spirit, we're taught by the Spirit. If you, ha- if you are mature, if you're truly mature, that you have the Spirit of God and you're taught by the Spirit of God. Now what does it mean to be taught by the Spirit of God? Sp- true spirituality is to have God's Spirit, means God's Spirit's in you, Francis talked about this last week. True spirituality is to be taught, to be moved, to be led, to be animated by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit's in you and it transforms your life. It reshapes everything that you see and the world as you see it. It changes the way that you go to church and it changes the way that you go to work and you go on date. It changes everything because God's Spirit is speaking to you and teaching you and testifying to the things that are true and pure and holy and righteous even in the midst of an unrighteous world. This is what Paul will argue. And this is what verse 6 means. Look at verse 6 again. This is why this is so important. We do have wisdom, by the way. However, we speak... A message of wisdom among the mature. Paul says we do have wisdom, but not the wisdom you think it is. It's a wisdom that mature people get, that spiritual people get. This is, this is how he proves his point. Let's, let's look what he says next. But, that's a very important but there in your Bible. But not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Remember I told you how that is going to be a very important phrase for us to understand what Paul's saying. It's underlined there because I want you to underline it on your Bible or whatever you have, whatever device you're using. But not I, I, the wisdom of, of, of God is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. This underlying portion right here is so huge. Let me explain to you why. Again, hang on for a second. This will all make sense. The followers of God have always been In the Old Testament, especially, an eschatological people with an eschatological hope. You've heard me say that plenty of times if you've been here over the last couple of years. Eschatology has to do with the end of all things. So the people of God have always been people who hope for the end of all things. The Jewish people in the Old Testament waited and clung to a hope of a better future. A future where God would right every wrong, restore all that is broken, and bring an end to the present evil age. So here, here, here's the age to come defined, and I've defined this to you before by using the kingdom of God. That's what they called the age to come, was the kingdom of God. That was their code word for the age to come. Age to come, code word, kingdom of God. This is what it was. The age to come, the kingdom of God, is an expression that embodied the hopes of the Jewish people, that God would one day remove all evil from the world and inaugurate a new unprecedented age of blessing and prosperity and joy. They were hoping for the age to come when God would inaugurate this new place of blessing and peace and joy and prosperity and newness. The hope was that the whole world would be under the glorious rule of God. Again, this is review. This is important. This hope was spiritual and spatial. Remember that? It was spiritual because the power of sin would be destroyed in the age to come the enemy, Satan, and evil would be disarmed. All people would worship God in the age to come. This would also be spatial because the world would not know poverty. Oppressive governments would, not, would, would be brought down and the world would not know famine or deprivation. Every animal would get along. It would be perfection in the age to come. So the Jewish people saw universal history divided in two parts. So important. This age and the age to come. This age and the age to come. This age was characterized by sin and sickness and demon possession and evil people triumphing. The age to come was characterized by the presence of the Spirit of God, righteousness, health, peace. Now here's the part that I haven't explained to you in the past that is so important to this section of Scripture. What happened? What flipped the dial? What closed the curtain on the first act and opened the curtain on the second act? What was the event that did that? They believed that Messiah would come. And what Messiah would do is overthrow evil and then bring resurrection to every living, uh, resurrection of the living and dead. And then everyone would know, everyone on the earth would know and have the knowledge of the Lord. The resurrected earth and then the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. So what would flip the dial between this age and the age to come was a resurrection and the Holy Spirit being poured out. On the whole world. Now, trip out on this. What happened in Jesus? The resurrection of one man. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on everyone who believes in him. So what does that mean? This is huge. This means the age to come crashed into this age it broke in the age to come crashed into the into, into this age to where you have both of them happening at the same time in other words because god redeems the church the church gets the spirit of god and is resurrected and they are resurrected spirit-filled people living in the age to come but live in this age if I can draw a little stick figure, I take one who's the age to come and then put him in this age. Do you guys, you guys get that picture? Do you guys understand that? The church, the people who follow Jesus are people who live as though it's the age to come, meaning they're, the Spirit of God has them. They, they live according to Christ's righteousness. They have, they have a promise of a new body. We are the people of the age to come who live in this age. And because of that, we see everything differently. Now, I want you to look at verse 6 again and tell me if you start to understand it a little bit more. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, which are coming to nothing. You, church, are not a part of this age because the age to come has broke into this age. And you guys are living like you're a part of this age, but you're not. You died, you were crucified, and you were resurrected. You now live in the age to come. But they weren't getting that. They were still living for this age. They were still living for the stuff on this earth. They were still living that way. And Paul's like, stop doing that. That's why you're divided. That's why you're fighting. That's why you're suing each other. That's why you're giving your bodies in sexual immorality. That's why you're doing all these things, because you forgot that you have died in Christ, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. In the life that you now live, you live to the glory of God. You live in the age to come. Do you remember that? This is what Paul is trying to get them to understand. No, we declare God's wisdom Mystery that has been hidden, that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know what Paul's saying? Hey, you guys want the, you want, you just want the wisdom of this age you do? Okay, awesome, great, great, awesome. You know what this, the wisdom of this age did? Crucified the Lord of glory. You want the wisdom of this age? Good job, this age. You killed Messiah. Do you want that? That's what he, that, that's kind of his argument here. Like, yeah, you want the wisdom. You guys are all thinking about this age. You know what the wisdom of this age did? Killed your Lord. But then, Paul, gosh, look what he does next. He goes, however, however, no one saw this coming. That was the very way that God redeemed the earth. However, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God prepared for those who loved him. However, no one saw it coming that God would use that very thing to save. Paul's so crazy, isn't he? It's just, verse 10. These are the things that he's revealed to us by his spirit. Are you guys following along here? You guys good? You guys are pretty quiet. Not that you guys talk normally. I don't know. I don't know what I'm expecting right now. So let's get back to our first question. Who spiritual people are? Who are they? Spiritual people, they are people... In whom the age to come has crashed into their mortal bodies, giving them God's spirit because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and has caused us to be truly spiritual. Living in this age with renewed heart and mind, helping to bring God's will to this earth as it is in heaven, the age to come. Do you get that? When we pray on earth as it is in heaven, who are those agents bringing God's will? on earth as it is in heaven, those who live in the age to come, the church. Now there are a lot of implications for this redefinition of true spirituality. Here are two that Paul uses. The first is how spiritual people think. The best way I can summarize the first point is by saying that true spirituality is just this. It's Christ-likeness. Christ lived as if the kingdom of God, he was actually bringing the kingdom of God to earth. He was bringing in the age to come to earth. You and I live like this. Verse 16 in chapter 2 says, we have the mind of Christ. How do spiritual people think? Spiritual people think like Christ. See, to be spiritual is not to draw on an innate higher capacity of of the human soul. It is to be moved and activated and transformed by the holy spirit of god in conformity with the mind and the heart of christ let me try to explain this look at verse 15 in chapter 2 it says the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things now what does that mean the person who is spiritual who has the spirit of god makes judgment about all things what this means is this they can discern all things understand the things of God why because the God's spirit remember last week God's spirit who only God's spirit knows God makes his his mind known to us because you and I have the mind of Christ you and I discern all things we understand the things of God because the spirit reveals them to us the person with the spirit makes judgment about all things because in Christ we have the mind of Christ that means we know we can know all things but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments now what does that mean this means that no one really understands them. That means the world, this age. Have you ever shared the gospel, or not, not even the gospel, if you just share with people the hope that you have, which is the gospel, by the way, but the hope that you have. Like, I'm a Christian. They're like, I thought you were a smart person. I thought you, like, you had your stuff together. Like, why are you a Christian? I just don't get it. Have you ever sat with somebody? Maybe you're here this morning. You're like, dude, I hear you're talking, but I just don't get what you're saying. I don't get why you would believe in Jesus. I don't get it. The, the followers of God, Christians, understand what's really going on in the world. But the world cannot understand this. The best example that I can think of was um, yesterday, my, one of my best friends in the whole world buried his daughter, Daisy Love, Merrick. You've probably heard the story. Um, Tark announced it last week. Francis shared a little bit about it last week. And um, the memorial will be online, by the way, and it was probably one of the most amazing things I've ever, ever witnessed in my life over every Easter or wedding or anything I've ever experienced. A memorial, a funeral, pretty much. Um, And the best way I can describe this that people just don't get as there was a private graveside before the memorial. And we're sitting next, we're standing next to this coffin that is far too small. Coffins shouldn't be made that small. And her dad, Britt, explaining next to this grave why they buried her with her feet facing Jerusalem. Because one day, on the last trumpet shout, Christ will return. And the dead in Christ, their bodies will rise first. And Daisy's body will break through that little coffin and be resurrected. And when her little body bursts out of that grave, the first thing that her resurrected body will see is Messiah. When she punches out of that grave. And we, so- we stood next to this coffin and we sang, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul, standing next to this little coffin that is just way too, there's no way in this world, everyone's looking at this like, why did this happen? This should not be this way. And we gathered around and sang, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The world just does not get that at all. People might not get that. But if you were there as a follower of Jesus, it was the most truest thing you have ever heard in your life. That's not even proper English. It was the tr- I, was, I, was, I was standing there going, this is the truest thing I have ever heard in my life. That it is well with my soul. It is well. And it's well with the family's soul. And everyone that was there, it's well because of this. And unless this is revealed to you, it doesn't make sense. But if it is revealed to you, it makes the truest sense. And this is what Paul is saying. He says in verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer is rhetorical. It's like, ah, oh, duh, no one knows the mind of the Lord. This reinforces Paul's point that the natural mind is incapable of understanding God's designs, God's ways. However, we have the Spirit of the Lord. We have the mind of the Lord, so we know. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And we could go, uh, we do, because we have the mind of Christ. So who has known the mind of the Lord? We have, because we have known the Spirit of God. However, we must remember who Christ is for Paul. The whole thrust of this passage is Christ is the crucified Messiah. So we have the mind of Christ, but the mind of Christ is to be like Christ. Because you have the mind of Christ, that means you are like Christ. That is to participate and conform to the pattern of the cross. Let me show you how this is true. Paul writes to another church, the church in Philippi. It's the letter to the Philippians. It's in the New Testament. He writes this in chapter 2, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you the interest of others. Why? He'll tell you why right now. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. You see what Paul does there? Like, you have the mind of Christ. Because you have the mind of Christ, act like you have the mind of Christ, prefer one another. Let me tell you what the mind of Christ is like. And then he explains, verse 6, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Christ made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross." See, the Corinthian church were guilty of having a mind pattern after this age, after this world. It was all about power to them. It was all about wisdom of this world to them. It was all about money to them. It was all about influence to them. And Paul is saying, you are like Christ. It should be all about humility to you. It should be all about love to you. The most spiritual person is a person who looks like Jesus, who has in their life a pattern of self-denial, a self-sacrificial service, the pursuit of peace. Let me give you a secret into Paul's, all of Pauline literature, all of Pauline's, all of Paul's writing. Let me give you a secret. This is what Paul is trying to get out in pretty much all of his writing. Here it is. Be who you are. Be who you are. This is what he tries to tell people in Philippi, in Corinth, in Thessalonica. Be who you are. You are, you have the mind of Christ. Act like you have the mind of Christ. You have a new identity. Live in your new identity. You are beloved of God and accepted by God. Live with that peace and that assurance. Live that way. Your body belongs to Christ. Show that your body belongs to Christ by the way that you, that you interact with, it, with, with with sex and sexuality. This is what Paul does over and over again. And the question is, what lies are you believing to live into a false narrative? What lies are you believing to power grab in a church or at your job or the way that you see life or marriage or dating or whatever it is, what, are, what false narrative are you believing? Paul would say, the New Testament would say, it's not true. Lastly, what do spiritual people do? And this is where we'll close. Verse one in chapter three. Brothers and sisters, I could not dress you as people who live by the Spirit, but people who are still worldly. You guys still are fleshy mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still living by milk. How can Paul say they're infants in Christ? His answer demonstrates how dramatically he wants to redefine their understanding of spirituality. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not, are you not of the flesh? Aren't you behaving or literally walking according to human inclinations? Here's the point. Spirituality has real weight. Spirituality is not this sort of ethereal thing that you float through life like I'm spiritual, I pray a lot, I, I, I worship really, really loudly and I worship really good. I, all my iPod is all just Hillsong music and like I... <laughs> I'm like, I just I have prayer apps and Bible things, and like I I spend an hour in the morning with God. That is not spirituality has real weight, flesh, and action. They thought spirituality meant they prayed well and they had awesome worship experiences and they knew a lot of biblical knowledge, but there was strife in their church. Have you ever met spiritual people who don't get along with their family? Have you ever met spiritual people that don't get along in their community group? They're not being spiritual. They might be able to pray the longest, but they hold on to the most bitterness. They're not being spiritual. There was jealousy. There was division inside the church. See, true spirituality holds relational interaction as central central to being spiritual. Let me say that again because I kind of messed it up. True spirituality holds relational interaction as central to being spiritual. So, if you and I are spiritual, meaning we have the Spirit of God, and we don't love each other, we're liars. This is what John, the beloved apostle, says in 1 John. You say you love God, but you don't see Him, but you see your brother and you don't love them, you're a liar. By the way, Satan's a liar. You might be of Satan, not of God. Have a good day. Like that's his, that's what he was saying. This is, what, this is what John was saying. This is, do you see that being spiritual is not this like, um, I'm like so spiritual and like I worship really good and then the lights are off on carpets and then you get up and you're just rude to people. You get up and you just don't like your community group. You get up and you don't like your roommates. You get up and you just don't forgive You don't go the extra mile to bring unity. That's not spirituality. Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality has real flesh and bones on it. Paul will say, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's spirituality. Forgiveness. That's true spirituality. Bearing with one another even though they bug you. That's true spirituality. Being vulnerable with your heart and your resources in the Christian community. That's spirituality. And Paul artfully brings his long reflection on the cross and the spirit and wisdom back to the issue that launched the letter. He launched the whole letter with problem, the problem of divisions in the church. Do you see how this went full circle? He said, there's divisions among you. You say Paul. You say Apollos. The cross is foolishness. You're not wise. You need to grow up. You're not mature. You should have the Spirit of God. If you had the Spirit of God and you were spiritual, you wouldn't fight. Aren't you being human? Don't you realize that you guys are people of the age to come? One of the things he says in the next chapter is like, or in two chapters now, he says, You guys are suing each other. You guys are suing. You guys are suing each other. Don't you know? that you are people of the age to come and you're going to judge angels? I think you guys can figure it out. I mean, you're going to judge angels. You guys are the people of the age to come. Be who you are. Church, if you and I think that spirituality is some sort of detached from our body, super like esoteric experiences, it's not. So, if you're tempted right now as we move into a time of worship <clears throat> to go, I'm going to get spiritual now. To the Christian, there's no getting spiritual. You are spiritual. You don't have a spiritual life, you have a life, and it's spiritual because you have the Spirit of God. If you do not have the Spirit of God, and God by His Spirit opened your eyes today, and you're like, I want the Spirit of God, I never wanted the Spirit of God before, but I want the Spirit of God, trust in Christ. It's Christ's Spirit that renews us. And what the Spirit of God does, He teaches us the things of Christ. He brings to our remembrance the words of Christ. He makes us more like Christ. What the city, what San Francisco and the Bay Area needs is not people that are self-righteous, judgmental, think they have the only truth, but people who are like Christ, humble, humble, self-sacrificial and give their lives in the service of others. That's true spirituality. It has real flesh and bones. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you, God, for your spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the one that um, brings us to Christ, testifies of the things of Christ and makes us truly spiritual. Lord, we repent of our self-righteousness before you. Thinking that because we say the right prayers or we might have the right doctrine, we're better, we're the best, and we judge everyone else. We repent of that, God. May our church be marked by true humility and unity in the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give some real flesh and bones to our spirituality as a church. that our spirituality wouldn't just be known as, this, as the second set of worship. But what we do when we get up from the carpets and we, when we digest communion and after someone has prayed for us, what we do then, how we live our lives. We are the people of the age to come. I pray that we would act like it. In Jesus' name.